Welcome back to the peripheral. First things first, the Patreon is back up and going. Thank you all for donating to me. It's very nice, and you make this podcast ad-free. At one point, I'd reached out to a few therapy advertisers, but all of them wanted me to sign contracts. None of them would do a one-off here and there, so I just said, forget it. I got Patreon. Nobody's got time to listen to ads. Since the last episode, I've started using minoxidil on my receding hairline. So thank you, Blue, for the for the pro tips. I'm definitely using them. On this episode, I speak to Stephen from the podcast This Is Adulting. It's about suicide. Stephen asked me to give a warning at the beginning of the show about wrist cutting. He actually shares a story about his girlfriend that that bothered me more than his actual description of his attempt so just wanted to put that out there I know this can be a dark topic for some I promise you that I have a bunch more light-hearted episodes coming up to to mix it up with some of these more dark episodes so I promise you there is light Introduce yourself w- along with your podcast. Sure. Um, my name is Steven. I never know what to say when I'm told to introduce myself. I am, uh, you know, I live in North Carolina. It's mm-hmm. about as far as I'll go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I am the co-host and founder of the Is This Adulting podcast, which is a podcast I do with my college roommate, yeah. which is combinations of silly and serious. Um all in the effort of breaking the stigma on mental illness. So you start yeah. out every episode with uh, a health check. Yes, absolutely. Um, we, uh, especially as we've both gotten into therapy and things like that now, both my co-host and I deal with mental illness. And so we figured a long time ago, you know, we were having these conversations anyway, which we were checking in on each other, making sure, you know, he struggles with anxiety. I struggle with a cocktail of things that I will share. Um, but we decided, hey, you know, we're checking in with each other anyway, and then we're devolving into these stupid, silly, fun conversations. Like, why don't we just record this and make a effort um, or make an effort to really connect with listeners and really be relatable and really be a resource so that we can say, hey, mental illness is a thing. It's a very real thing, and it's something that we struggle with and we know that a lot of you struggle with too so maybe we can all help each other yeah you you're trying to be as real as possible yeah. right exactly we approach it from a standpoint of this is something we just deal with and that doesn't mean we can't have fun and be silly and talk about star wars but that also means you know sometimes we got to get serious and talk about real stuff yeah. i think it's a perfect combination and balance because the fun stuff is what you distract yourself with the fun stuff is what keeps you going right it's the old adage of you know if you don't laugh you'll cry exactly like, you, know, <laughs> you got you got to find the laughter and the levity in everything mm-hmm. so you had something happen uh when you were in high school yes um that is kind of where this all begins mm-hmm. um i guess technically the anxiety that I've struggled with 
<laughs> that's mental illness number one. Um, I have a chronic panic disorder. That kind of started when I was younger. Um, when I was five, I apparently told my mother it felt like there were wheels turning inside me that never stopped. Oh, wow. Um, and I don't know how as a five-year-old I was that in tune with my body or my brain, but I told her that and, you know, that could very well be the ADHD too. Um, there's number two, mm -hmm. um, even though that's more of a disorder than an illness, but it all kind of started there. But once I hit high school, the mental illness monster, um, as we kind of call it on our show sometimes, kind of reared its ugly head. And uh, that all stemmed from this kind of traumatic event that I went through. I was 16 years old mm -hmm. and I had a girlfriend who we had dated for about a year, year and a half, which in high school is, you know, a lifetime. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we were being high schoolers. We were doing what high schoolers do. We were horsing around and rough housing and playing. And, uh, she was chasing me around her driveway and I ran back in through the door. She was in a split level house. And so there was a door into the living room off of the driveway, um, kind of down on the lower level. And so I ran into there and she was right behind me. And so, you know, we're messing around. So I turned and I closed the door behind me. Now, what didn't happen is I tripped and fell and used the door to break my fall and it shut behind me. That's the lie I told myself and that's the lie I told people when I told this story for years mm -hmm. because I couldn't come to terms with I made the decision to shut the door. Yeah. But when I did, she reached out to stop it and it was a standard door leading into a house, but you know, it had a window in it and her arm went straight through the window and shattered the glass. So, of course, at first, you know, we're freaking out because I'm I'm thinking, okay, well, her mom's going to kick my ass. Yeah. Like, we're going to have to figure out how to fix this. And uh, then I realized she's not laughing with me and she's not panicking about it. And she just screamed and took her, I, I, I don't know how graphic I can get, Um, took her hand off of her you know, upper forearm around the wrist and I saw bone Ouch. and all of a sudden I realized, um, there was blood spraying on the walls, um, and on me. And so she ran upstairs. Her mom's a nurse luckily. So she kind of knew what to do. She jumped into action. I called nine one one, um, which is the only time I've ever had to do that in my life. Thank God. I, I still to this day can't listen to a podcast that play too many nine one one calls though, just because, it kind of freaks me out, mm -hmm. but I called 911 and then I just remember going out into the driveway and just like collapsing between the four cars that were parked there and just like sitting there and rocking back and forth and not really knowing what to do. I went into shock. Luckily, the fire department was in her backyard, literally. Mm -hmm. So they got there and stopped the bleeding initially. Um, and then the paramedics came, but I could not ride in the ambulance. So I got in my car to drive myself, which her neighbor, who also happened to be the same year as me in high school, um, and a good friend of mine immediately jumped in the car and took my keys and said, no, like you're, you're not in any condition to drive. So she drove me to the hospital and I spent the next probably 12 hours at the hospital Sitting in the emergency room, they let me go back, um, but sitting outside the room while they worked on her and um, 
what had happened was there was glass in there they had to get out but the bleeding had stopped for the most part when the fire department came the first time but since it had stopped without the removal of the glass they had to reopen the wound in the end what happened is her ulnar artery um, was severed 90 percent if it had been 100 percent she would not have made it i set up most of the night while they did microscopic surgery they got her put back together and i was still in complete shock you know, I went back to her house and cleaned up as much as I could. A friend came and picked me up at the hospital and we did that. And I actually went into work and almost lost my job because I went in and screamed at my boss because when I initially called in, he told me I was making it up. And if I didn't show up, I was fired. Oh, God. So I went in wearing a blood soaked T-shirt and I threw it on his desk <laughs> and I asked him if he fucking believed me now. And I stormed out. I was lucky enough that the general manager of the store I was working at did not fire me over that. And he actually reprimanded the assistant manager for being such a jerk about it. You're calling into work. It's not the end of the world. They can get by without you. Right. Exactly. And it's, it's a grocery store. You know, it's not gonna, you know, they have a lot of employees. It's not like there's three employees and I'm calling out and I was the only person they had. So this uh, weighs heavy on you because you're blaming yourself for almost killing your girlfriend right um i remember the day after i didn't go to school and i just went into the hospital and i climbed into the hospital bed with her and i just cried because yeah. i realized i had almost killed her or well she had almost died because of an accident but at the time i was very much in the mindset that this was my fault and i had almost done it and that's why I lied to myself for years and told myself, oh, well, I tried to catch the door to break my fall. I tried to this. I tried to that. But the fact of the matter is I made a choice. We thought we were just playing around and uh, it caused an accident that very nearly cost her her life. And it took me a long time to come to terms with that. I was I was lucky enough in high school to have some teachers who the day I did go back, I had a handwritten note from my mother signed by a doctor saying like, hey, don't push him. Like as far as schoolwork, just kind of let him be present. He needs a couple days. Um, like I said, I went into shock. I remember in the emergency room, they were trying to give me the same sedatives they were giving her because I was just, I was a mess. Well, it's it's understandable. I, I don't blame your reaction at all. I mean, it's you're in love with this person, and it was such a, a simple, innocent mistake. It makes you feel like life is truly fragile, <laughs> our mortality is just hanging it definitely makes you feel that and i uh about a week later had my first panic attack didn't know what one of those was like but uh i sure found out yeah you think you're dying <laughs> they're not yeah yeah i thought i was having a heart attack um in high school at 17 years old and, you know i was you know i was a fat kid you know i have no shame in that and i have no shame in using the word fat um i think it's too often given this negative connotation, you know, I, I was fat. I was, I was like 300 pounds in high school. Um, I thought I was having a heart attack because yeah. heart disease runs in my family. And I thought for sure that was what was going on. And, uh, luckily it was not. And I talked to a doctor and checked me out and they said, no, it's not your heart. Um, I think you are having some sort of trauma related, um, anxiety. Mm -hmm. That was when I figured out that I had an anxiety disorder and that would only worsen over the next 10 years. Yeah, because you aren't doing anything about it. You're not treating it. 
you let it go unchecked and it's just going to get worse. Right. Well, for years I was told by society, I was told by people that if I took medicine or if I sought therapy, then I was quote unquote crazy and that it was something to be ashamed of. You're weak. Yeah, exactly. I can't handle my own pain. You know, as a 16, 17 year old kid, you believe that because you've never been told otherwise, you know, you believe that, yeah, okay, maybe I am weak if I give into this. And plus, you know, at 17, you don't really want to start a whole bunch of medications. There's a reason that on the commercials it says, you know, it increases the risk of suicide in teens and young adults because your brain's not fully formed. Yeah. The chemicals are affecting you in a different way. So I really didn't want to go that route either. So I just kind of let it lay. And that was a big mistake. And that sucks because I think it's, slightly more acceptable now it's it's more in the the public spotlight now uh, right i i see younger kids talk about going to their therapist fairly openly but that just might be the ones that i'm around and it doesn't mean that it's true for all of them and i mean at least with parents we think oh your kid's going to therapy good you know he's working things right. out but other kids they're vicious Kids are brutal, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you go for ten years of anxiety, panic attacks. Any milestones during that, or? Well, um, I didn't make it out of high school before the next "quote unquote" milestone. wasn't a good milestone. <laughs> uh, I was probably seventeen. The first time I considered and uh, did what I consider an attempt as far as suicide goes. I've said in the past, you know, some people don't consider what happened to me an attempt, but I do. Um, I consider myself someone who survived an attempt because I came closer than a lot of people come to uh, to making good on that terrible thought. And so I remember we were at our house. This was right before my family entered some financial strife and we lost our home and uh, a lot of bad shit happened. But the one thing is our family was always tight. Our family was always solid. You know, we, we had it out, but that was the one thing I was lucky to have was a strong, supportive family. Um, it was just my mom and my dad and me. And so that was good. But we got into our tussles. And I remember one night my dad and I really got into it. You know, I was still dealing with all this stuff. I was still under a lot of pressure. Um, I had this underlying mental illness, this depression that I didn't know about at the time. And I remember storming around to my room and he was trying to come after me and we were talking. I slammed the door and locked the door. And when I slammed the door, the big, tall standing lamp that you can get for like $8 at Target, like one of those things, fell over and it busted the bulb and it shattered. I just remember my dad who very very sweet man um would never hurt a fly but he was angry he wanted to talk and i was shutting him out and so he's beating on my door and i remember just like kneeling down in front of this broken bulb and there's this long shard of bulb glass sitting there and that's the first time that the thought crossed my mind of well there is one way out of all this and i took the glass and I held it in my hand for a while and I think you know my dad finally decided uh you know he was going to give me some time to process I think if he had had any clue what was going on on the other side of that door um he would not have done so but 
I sat there for a while and um, I finally just decided, you know, maybe this was what I needed to do. And so I put the glass to my wrist and then I held it there and I, and I pressed it with pressure enough that, you know, I, I drew a little blood and I stopped. I, I, I didn't go through with it. I stopped the moment I saw the blood. I think it became real. Some people don't consider that a suicide attempt. Um, some people will tell me that I did not attempt suicide. I believe that if you hold a razor to your wrist, just because you don't draw it across all the way, doesn't mean you didn't attempt. You had the intent. I had the intent. I just, thank God, came to my senses. Well, if um, you pressed it in in another place, you could have hit the vein. And, right, and then, exactly. And would people have said, oh, well, that's an attempt. Well, I don't, I don't get the whole what's an attempt and what's not. If you have the thought and you're going through the motions, I would call that an attempt myself. Exactly. And, you know, some people who have survived attempts, they get very touchy about what's an attempt and what's not. But the majority of them do understand and they, they sit there and go, okay, okay. Well, if, if you were doing it with the intent of actually going through with the action, okay, you attempted suicide, which makes you a survivor. Yeah. Oddly enough, I've had other people tell me that they've overdosed on pills and then in, in the same sentence say, but I really didn't want to die. But they went right. further down that path than most. So it's, right. it, so they don't consider it an, an attempt, yet if they didn't get medical help immediately, they would have died. So I think that's a fuzzy, stupid argument to have. With I, I think if you're thinking about it and going through the motions, that's an attempt, and I don't care how far you got. That, that kind of happened. and uh... <laughs> I, I got a couple questions about this, if you don't sure. mind. Some people say that uh, suicide is a selfish act. I think a lot of people who say suicide is a selfish act don't understand mental illness. I think that, but on the flip side as well, I think that people who say that it's all about the people surrounding the individual, I think that that's bullshit too. I don't think it is a selfish act because in that moment, your brain is not firing rationally. You are not making this decision of, oh, well, this will all be better for me and I don't care what happens to the other people. You know, I mean, that's what stopped me is thinking about the other people. But that doesn't mean that if I'd gone through with it, I was being selfish. What people don't understand is depression especially mixed with anxiety and other mental illnesses. I mean, people say, well, why don't you just cheer up? Why don't you just yeah. not feel that way? Okay, well, depression is the com or sadness, I guess, is the common cold. Mm -hmm. Depression is cancer. There's a difference. And, I, you know, and I may catch some heat for this because people don't like when it's referred to this way, but depression is a terminal illness if not treated. The, the facts are one in five people who live with a serious diagnosable mental illness will commit suicide over the course of their life. One in five. That's, that's a radical number. If you really think about it, 20% is a high percentage of people. I mean, that's, you know, that's one out of five too many. And so if, if you thought a disease was a 20% fatality rate, they would be looking for a cure for that disease real quick. It would be called right. 
We right. Know. But because you can't see this illness as outwardly or people are good at hiding it or whatever, it's become this stigmatized idea of, oh, well, that person's weak or that person is, to answer your question, selfish. People see it as an act that somebody is making a very rational, conscious decision to do. And that's just not the case. I mean, there are people who just decide with no underlying mental illness, there are people out there who just decide to kill themselves. I'm not saying that's selfish either, but what I'm saying is from a personal standpoint and from friends of mine, looking back at it, I don't see suicide as selfish because I see it as a sick person, a person who is dealing with illness and this is just one of the sad side effects. Yeah, and when you said your brain is going against everything it's programmed to do, right? we're hardwired for self-preservation. And you're throwing out a millennia of instinctual imprinted behavior when you do that. You know, that's one reason my wife and I were having a discussion about suicide, actually, which sounds really depressing. But it was it was a conversation based off of the eight-year-old boy here in the past few days that committed suicide because of bullying, Mm -hmm. who hanged himself. We were having a discussion on that because suicide in general goes against everything that your body is telling you to do. But some methods, my method, if I had gone through with it, um, gun method, pill method, they're fast or they're fairly painless, depending on if they're executed properly. But that doesn't mean that it's not going against every instinct you have. It's just the way your brain is firing at the time. Um, I don't know if I've kind of rambled off and I'm not making no, sense. No, um, you are clear as a crystal right now. <laughs> okay. Cause I was going to say, cause to me, I just don't, I've never bought the argument that suicide is selfish and uh, that's a lie. As I said it, I realized it's a lie. I have in the past thought that, mm-hmm. but As I've gotten older and as I've understood mental illness better and I fought to break the stigma, I understand that this is a war and people don't understand that every single day that you deal with a legitimate, and I say legitimate because there are people out there, um, not many, but there are people out there who do not have diagnosable disorders that blame a lot of things on disorders. But if you have a legitimate mental illness, it's, it's a war. Every day is a war. And I know people... People think that that's just people being weak, but it's true. I know of a person who was a part of the community. Uh, She started the semicolon movement, if you've heard of that. Um, And she, while it started as a Christian organization, and I don't necessarily always jive with that whole idea of it, she was changing people's lives. She was telling them that just because you've attempted suicide, that's not the end of your story. Your story's going on. You're strong. You fight. You fight every day. But it's a battle you could lose any day. And unfortunately, about two months ago, I think, uh, maybe even less time, she committed suicide after all these years of advocating against it because every day is a struggle. You know, I don't mean to be a downer or make it sound like super sad. It's just a very serious issue that I think a lot of people put too much credence in the fact that it's a decision and it's not a symptom of an illness. It's It goes with every day is a new day, but every day you kind of start over. I mean, you can make headway. You can win some battles, but the war is not over ever. Right. You know, you don't cure yourself of depression. You learn to manage it. Mm-hmm. And that's something I've, I've had to do 
because <laughs> my story goes on and uh as it got worse and worse managing was something that i finally decided to do because it just it kept piling on over the years you know once i got to college uh it escalated mm-hmm. and suicide crossed my mind a lot more and the depression worsened and the anxiety worsened and that was triggered by a few things and it just it can snowball especially if it's not treated and even if you're doing well life is still happening you can lose your job break up with your girlfriend you can have other things that will trigger you or other setbacks that will absolutely uh, demolish any headway you've made. And right. uh, I remember uh, one of my earlier episodes, uh, she was talking about she was sad and then that turned into depression. And then 10 years later down the road, she's she's like, oh my gosh, I thought I was mourning, but now I realize I am in a full-blown depression. It and it, it piles on, man. I'm telling you, it it snowballs in a way that nobody really can understand unless they've seen it firsthand, I think. Mm-hmm. Something happened a few years ago with your father? Uh, well, a few years ago and fairly recently. In 2011, um, I was a, let's see, junior or first-year senior uh, in college. Mm-hmm. Over the summer, you know, my dad hadn't been feeling great, and so they said, okay, well, we're just going to run a stress test as a precaution, you know, make sure everything's good. But, you know, he had a heart cath 10 years ago. He's perfectly fine. Like, I mean, there was no blockage 10 years ago. There's no way that you can have significant blockage over those 10 years based on the way he had been treating his body. And so there's nothing to worry about. Well, quickly, the stress test turned into, well, let's do a heart cath. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, well, something's up. Uh, Against what everyone was telling me of everything's fine. Don't worry about it. I I drove the hour and a half or two hours home from school um, and skipped all my classes. Luckily it was summer classes and it was like racquetball. So it didn't matter. So, cause I, he he told me, he said, Steven, it's a fucking racquetball class. (laughs) Like you're not going to fail. Go do what you got to do. And so (laughs) I went, I went down for the heart cath um, just to be a support there. And, um, What I didn't tell you is my father had diabetes and he did not watch his sugar ever, ever, ever. Ten years go by and in a normal person, maybe they couldn't form that much blockage. Maybe he would have still been cleaning his whistle. But in a diabetic, it can wreak havoc on your organs. It attacks your organs if you don't maintain it. And one of the first organs it attacks is your heart. And so... I remember sitting in the waiting room after the cath and my mom picks up the little waiting room phone and we're all thinking everything's going to be fine. And I just kind of see her face shift and I realize, you know, maybe, maybe everything's not going to be great. And I'm a, you know, I'm a 21, 22 year old kid, um, at the time. And she says, you know, there's some blockage. They're going to have to do open heart surgery. I say, okay, you know, you know, then we talk to the cardiologist and realize, you know, my father wasn't years away. He wasn't weeks away, months away. He was literally days away from a massive fatal heart attack, anything strenuous. And that would have been it. Wow. He was actually supposed to be a pallbearer the week before. And I stepped in for him cause he wasn't looking so good. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I actually 
feel like that may have been a good move, you know? Yeah, yeah. he might have so, saved uh, his life at that moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so they, they went through with it. They did the open heart surgery. Um, that's tough for a 21-year-old to have to, you know, have everybody step out of the room except for you and your dad and have him tell you to take care of your mom and all that if things go south with the surgery because, you know, there was blockage in four arteries, but he could only... He could only have three operated on because the diabetes had dissolved his fourth artery. Sure, you know, great. We'll get the triple bypass. We'll see what happens. He pulled through. Um, it was a long road to recovery. It was the first time I saw my father deal with mental illness. I knew he had diagnosed severe obsessive compulsive disorder with anxiety, but I had never seen him deal with depression until then. Mm-hmm. He entered full on depression during his recovery and, um, I entered full on anxiety. Um, I thought for sure every time I went to wing night, you know, at the restaurant up the street and had three beers and all the chicken wings I could eat, that was my last meal. I thought everything was going to be the thing that caused my heart attack because my grandfather died at 42 years old of a massive heart attack. Wow. That's my father had just had heart surgery at 57 um, and would have had a massive heart attack. His twin brother had already had three heart attacks. And so, in my head, you know, that's weighing on me now of, okay, well, it's going to be the heart. The heart's going to be the thing that gets me. And when you have an anxiety disorder, you constantly obsess about it. That triggered that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure some people would say, well, if you're so worried about it, why are you having three beers and a bunch of wings? But that's the other side of it is food makes you happy. And I, which I actually did after all that happened, I ran five miles a day. I never ramped up to it. I never did it the healthy way. (laughs) I ran five miles a day, day one. Um, I did it seven days a week, every day for over a year. Mm -hmm. Um, I barely ate what I did eat was good. Um, with the occasional visit to the fast food because I am in college after all. It's gotta happen. But, oh yeah, aside from, you know, some beers and the occasional fast food, I ate well and I dropped a hundred pounds in a year. And I was down to a, not slim, but for me slim, like 180, but I'm short, so <laughs> it was still uh, above the weight that I needed to be. Yeah. But I was able to drop that weight, and I got healthy because what I saw scared me. And uh, the anxiety was fine until I graduated college and moved down to my first job and had another massive panic attack, something relating to my heart. I freaked out. And that's when I had my first encounter with medication, which was not a positive one for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I went into the doctor with a panic attack and she handled both my panic attack and my blood pressure because apparently when I went in, uh, both due to genetics and anxiety, my blood pressure was 168 over 119, which is stroke level. Yeah, but white coat syndrome, panicking. Right. Right, exactly. And um, I thought that for a while. But I mean, most of my family starts blood pressure meds when they're 18. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we did reassess that later once I had handled some of that. And it was an actual blood pressure issue. But at the time, the biggest thing was the anxiety. Um, so she prescribed uh, everybody's favorite drug of choice, Prozac. Mm-hmm. I spent the next two and a half years in a haze. I did not understand what was going on around me sometimes. Everything felt like a dream, and uh, which pisses me off because I feel like I lost two and a half years of my life. You know, I, I got married during that two and a half years, and I barely remember a lot of it because it feels like a dream, which sucks. But at the same time, it was necessary 
at the time. Well, it's it does suck because this is your honeymoon period and it's you completely missed it. That's supposed to right. be the the happiest time of your marriage and you were a zombie. Right. And so I went on to the normal thing you do once you get back from your honeymoon, minus the fact that on the last day of our honeymoon, my mother called me. Well, I called her to wish her a happy Mother's Day. And she responded that my grandfather had died that morning. And so we had been lucky enough to basically have been gifted a honeymoon in Hawaii because we're broke and we were just going to go to the mountains of North Carolina. But we had some very generous people um, pay for airfare and hotels and all we had to pay for was food. Mm -hmm. And so I'm however many thousand miles away and finally got back, dealt with that, went on doing the daily grind, uh, got my corporate job, worked in my cubicle, took my Prozac like a good little zombie. And I'm not, you know, it works great for some people. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. I want, and I want everyone to really let that sink in. You know, some people, they go to therapy and it doesn't work out. Some people take this medicine. It doesn't work out. You have to find what works for you and it's different for everyone. Right. Exactly. And I, I mean the journey to find the right med for me just because it was kind of a turbulent one. Um, they upped my dose um, because I was having more anxiety mm -hmm. and about two weeks into the upped dose, I woke up one morning and that was the day the pill told me today's the day you kill yourself. Oh, man. I luckily had, <laughs> this sounds terrible, but I, I consider myself lucky to have experienced the suicidal issues in the past without medication. Yeah. So as soon as I woke up, I knew what those thoughts were and I knew that they weren't coming from me because I knew the difference of suicidal thoughts because I'm depressed and suicidal thoughts that were coming from nowhere. And so that's why I say the pill told me to kill myself because I believe the pill did tell me to kill myself. It was an imbalance in my brain and I called into work and I made sure that I was with somebody all day that day. And I called my doctor and I said, I'm quitting cold Turkey. I'm done with this. Mm -hmm. We will treat it naturally for now. I'll diet exercise. I'll do all that good stuff. But I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore because I'm on the wrong medicine. Yeah. And it sucks because you shouldn't quit cold turkey, but you know that if you don't, you're going to have these thoughts over and over and over. It's just going to make your, you're going to double down on what's bad already. You know? and, and with the medicine, it wasn't like before where there was some part of my mind telling me like, okay, well, think about it. With the medicine, it was just, oh, well, this is what we're doing today. And it was a terrifying, terrifying moment. I didn't want to feel that. So I quit cold turkey. It did go through some withdrawals because I'd been on it for two and a half years. Um, at the end of the day, it's worth it because I'm still sitting here talking to you. I handled it for as long as I could and all was well. I was running again. You know, I, I had a job doing some communications for a nonprofit and I was rolling on. Things were good. The job just started wearing me down again and the job brought back that depression. It doesn't take much for somebody with a mental illness to really bring it back. Mm -hmm. The job brought back the depression, the lack of purpose, the lack of motivation, the anxiety ramped up because, you know, I just, it felt like a storm was coming. And so I quit my job and I decided I was going to figure something out. And so that gave me time. I worked on myself. I started running. I started eating better again. I started dropping weight again because I had gained about 60 pounds back. Mm -hmm. I got off of the elliptical December 31st of this past year, okay. 10.04 in the morning. 
I was getting ready to do some weights in my room. My wife got on the elliptical behind me and uh, my phone rings. The first thing out of my mom's mouth is I need you to stay calm. And um, which which I just want to say, don't ever say that to somebody when they pick up the phone, because their first reaction is to not be calm. Mm -hmm. I have not talked much openly about this since it all happened. So I'm going to try to hold myself together. Um, And she said, your dad's had a heart attack. He's not responsive. And they're going to do CPR for the next 30 minutes. And if they can't bring him back and she she just dropped off. Um, she couldn't say anything else. And so I, I, um, I ran and got my wife off the elliptical while I was still talking to her. I made sure that she had somebody on the way to the house to be with her because I had a two hour drive ahead of me to get to her. I took a moment and I just screamed. I mean, at the top of my lungs, I just, with everything I had let out this gut wrenching, cry of just like anguish and then I pulled myself together and I drove us two hours to the town my folks are from halfway there my phone rang and my mom asked to speak to my wife and I told her no because I knew what that call was yeah and I said uh you don't have to say it I know already because by then I had I had kind of assumed uh that my father was gone I'm 27 years old Uh, that's not something I was ready for, you know, that's not something you're expecting necessarily this young, even with all the heart disease, even with the surgery, I kept thinking we would have longer. The thing that upsets me the most and breaks my heart is that man busted his ass. He worked for 40, yeah, 47 years. Mm -hmm. He retired on Friday evening and passed away in his sleep Friday night. Yeah. It was his last day of work. He came home and he just never woke up. He was supposed to start his life with my mom. She was retiring a week later. That was supposed to be, they had plans. That was the thing that rattled me so much is they had plans and the plans were just gone now. Yeah. I lost it. I I went off the deep end. I held myself together for about four weeks um, because I felt like that's what I needed to do for my family. Plus when that happens, you don't have time to think because within 12 hours there's family and friends and everyone pouring in the door and you don't have time to process. Um, And so I spent four weeks just going on like nothing happened. I went back home. I started running again. I, I picked everything up and then one night I was driving to my in-laws for a NFL playoff game. Actually, I had to pull off the interstate and get out of my car because I thought I was having a heart attack. And I had had panic attacks, but I had never had one like that. You just had so much pressure building up, so much that had just gone wrong. Life had show you, shown you how unfair it can really be. <sighs> I, I still went to the NFL playoff game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to hold it together after that, but... I finally reached a point where, you know, my wife came home from work one day and I, I broke down and I told her, I need help. I need to seek help. I've never sought help for this in my life because society's told me that I'm wrong to seek help, that I'm weak to seek help, but damn it, I need to seek help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I began that process, which has been 
a long and grueling one. You know, the first med I tried made it worse and I was having what I called quote unquote brain zaps. It felt like somebody was shocking my brain and things would like flash in and out of vision for a second. And like, it really messed with me. And it's a drug that worked great for my parents and worked great for my friends, but for it's a, it's Zoloft. I mean, it's a common drug that people take all the time. But for me, I had a bad reaction. They tried another SSRI. It shut me down. Um, I finally had to move on to, uh, benzos, uh, which they try not to keep you on for too long because they are habit forming. Yeah. That is all that's worked for me. That and yoga and meditation and I've started therapy and I've had to do all these things that I never thought would work for me, but they've been working. Mm -hmm. But I had to reach that point where I couldn't go any further without them uh, in order to seek them out because I got diagnosed with PTSD after my dad I still have major depressive disorder. Um, I still deal with chronic panic and I have mild to moderate agoraphobia. Um, I could not walk to my mailbox for a while without having a massive panic attack and sitting in the middle of the street. How does agoraphobia work? I, I just wonder because I, I, what is the fear uh, exactly? Do you think that is it just an illogical fear of just walking outside? I don't know. Um, I'm not a severe agoraphobic and mine has never been what the doctor called conscious agoraphobia. I have a subconscious or unconscious version of it. I wouldn't even have a fear until I would be in my car and I would be halfway up the street, a mile to the grocery store to pick up eggs or whatever we needed. And halfway up, I would start having a panic attack because that was too far. And so I had to slowly expand my... (laughs) my circle outside of the house. And that took a while. I'll tell you when you're going through all this, you start to believe what everyone's telling you. You start to believe that you're a crazy person because I couldn't rationalize my behavior. I couldn't rationalize the way my body was reacting to things, but it was, I had to reach a point where I realized it was an illness and I wasn't quote unquote losing my mind. I just needed professional help. And I mean, agoraphobia and, Anxiety and wanting to let people know that they're not alone is what birthed the podcast. Yeah. I I couldn't get a job. I still can't work because the stress of a job has caused me to, I I had a job. I lost it after a week Yeah, because I couldn't handle it. And so, and a lot of people are going to say, you know, suck it up buttercup. Like you got to contribute to your family. You got to make it happen. But at the end of the day, maybe, maybe they think I'm being selfish, but I have to make sure that I'm okay because by making sure I'm okay, I am contributing to my family. I have a friend that she's uh, pretty much paranoid schizophrenic. She had to move back in with her parents and she tried to get a job. Like her, her father got her a job running a cash register somewhere. She lasted two days before she got into like a verbal altercation with one of the customers. And then she had a panic attack and it's like, that's what happens. And you, you're, she's one of the brightest people I know. She's smart as can be. I mean, she's smarter than I am. It's just not working. It's not going to happen. She's got to get healthy first. And then even if she is healthy, she's got a, you know, our society's not quite set up to accommodate. No, 
Not at all. I mean, I know the reaction people have. I mean, I watched the HBO documentary that came out, what, um, end of last year, the Beware the Slender Man documentary. Mm-hmm. The father of one of the young girls that committed that crime had a kind of poignant quote uh, to me that really resonated with me and helped me understand because I deal with my mental illnesses, but there are levels of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and disorders that I can't understand, but I can try to sympathize and empathize. But I never really understood too much of what paranoid schizophrenia can be until he said, you know, the devil's not in the back seat, but the devil's in the back seat and he's talking to you. That's what I think helped me understand that. So I reached out and I told my friend, we have to find a way to have fun, but we've also got to let people know that you're not alone. And just because people don't understand your illness doesn't mean that somebody isn't going through the exact same thing. Yeah. And that quote was very chilling to hear because a lot of people will interpret that as, okay, well, anyone that's a paranoid schizophrenic or anyone that has this or that is now a threat. You know, what if that voice tells them to get a gun and shoot people? And I look at that the same way I look at a lot of other things in life is everyone treats it differently. Everyone has their own experience and everyone's going to react differently to that experience. And I I remember there was a story about a guy like an MMA fighter who took mushrooms and ended up killing his roommate and like chopping out his heart. Everyone's like, well, see, that's what happens when you're on mushrooms. That's that's (laughs) one guy who probably had issues prior to the mushrooms and he freaked out and just like mental illness might be a terrible uh, comparison, but like just because somebody has the devil in the backseat talking to them doesn't mean they're going to do what it, what the devil says. Right. Well, that's the thing is people don't, people hear that and they freak out. People don't understand or people hear that. Yeah. I attempted suicide and I've been suicidal even up until November of last year. I think I told you before we recorded and I'm happy to tell people now because I'm open about it. Mm -hmm. November of last year, I got in my car to go buy a gun Mm -hmm. and I'm not a gun guy. You know, I, I don't have problem with other people owning guns if they're in a stable mental state, but I got in the car to go buy a gun in a very not stable mental state because I just thought that would be easier just to deal with it that way. And have you, ever, I mean, have you ever been court ordered for uh, therapy? I've not. No. And you have a clean background. I do. Yeah. You would have been able to buy that gun. No problem. Exactly. <laughs> it's, that's a scary thought to me, but it's just people assume that they hear, Oh, well you've thought about suicide. They need to worry about you all the time. Well, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not a basket case. I'm not somebody you need to handle with kid gloves. I am a human being with an illness. It's, you know, I just have to accommodate <laughs> myself in ways and handle my illness the way I know how. And people hear that about schizophrenics and they think, oh, well, they're going to go shoot up someplace. Well, let me tell you, anybody could go shoot up someplace at any moment. And maybe they do, maybe they don't have underlying mental illness. Um, I I would argue they probably do and it's just gone untreated, Mm -hmm. but just because somebody's sick doesn't mean that they're going to act that way. And I think people need to destigmatize mental illness in society. And I may be ranting and I may be pissing a lot of people off, um, because I'm not a professional and my opinions are just my opinions, but these are the opinions of somebody who has 
lived for over 10 years with varying levels of mental illness from minor anxiety all the way up to full-on PTSD and ability to function in society. Well, it's your story and you're not getting it wrong. That's what I always come back to. If, if anyone has an issue with any of my guests, I just say it's their story. They don't get it wrong. And right. you, you can disagree with them, but this is what works for them or this is what they went through. You're still sitting here talking about it. So you're doing right. something right. What it boils down to is I just want to live my life in a way that I can help people know you are not alone. There is somebody that's there to listen to you. And if you're considering suicide, you're considering ending your life, please, please, please contact someone. Contact a friend, contact a loved one, contact a suicide hotline. They're totally confidential. You don't even have to be suicidal to call them, by the way. If you just need to talk, they are more than happy to help you. I mean, I'm I'm a big advocate of people using the resources they have, and I'm an advocate for letting people know there are resources, even if that's some goof like me who sits there and plays silly games on the internet with his friends and just tells you like, hey you're not alone. Let's talk about this. This is something we live with. And that's why we started the Facebook group. We started for people to come over and be like, Hey, I'm so-and-so I deal with panic disorder too. Um, here's this funny cat video I found, (laughs) or here's this funny star Wars parody I found. But at the same time, the next day they may post in that group and say, guys, I need to do a mental health check-in. I had a panic attack this morning, or I woke up screaming last night and it is a safe space for us to, go, hey, we hear you, we acknowledge you, and we are here to support you in any way we can. And that was the funniest fucking Star Wars video I have ever seen. Like, it's just our way of being a little family. When you said you you don't have to treat me with kid gloves, I hope that I at least didn't come off as walking on eggshells around you because I... I believe that. My friends that have been suicidal in the past and or have a mental illness, I treat them the same way. I mean, if they're having a panic attack, yes, I'm very sensitive to that, but they want normalcy and I give them that. Right. And that's the best thing you can do. You know, sometimes if they're having a panic attack, sit with them in silence and just be, just be there with them. You know, don't try to fix people who have a mental illness. That's, that's (laughs) something that I've had to tell myself because I'm a fixer. Um, But my wife has also had to learn, hey, like if I'm having a panic attack, sometimes I just need you to acknowledge, hey, I I see what you're going through. I acknowledge you. If you need me, you let me know how I can help you. But if not, I will be over here. And sometimes that's what people need. You don't have to talk somebody down, but you can talk. You can talk about, well, what did you think of that Star Wars video? You know, right. It's not changing the subject out of disrespect or not acknowledging. It's just getting them to focus on something. Yeah. I had a massive panic attack when my wife left town for, she was going for a weekend. It was the first time we had been that far apart. She was three hours away at the state Capitol and I lost my shit. She had to actually drive back, but I took a couple extra Xanax. She got on the phone with me. I watched silly YouTube comedy videos and talked to her on the phone for three and a half hours while she drove home. And it took that long, but I came out of it and I came out. That's what I needed that time. But, you know, maybe next time I need her to just let me have the room and be to myself. Yeah. 
just really being there for people and not necessarily trying to go, Hey, you're broken. Let me fix you. Yeah. There's no logic. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just, right. Dude, I I wish there was rhyme or reason. Yeah. (laughs) If A then B, yeah. A solution. I wish there was a pill, you know, medication isn't for everybody. It's worked wonders for me, but it's not for everybody. Some people don't respond well to it. As I've shown, I didn't respond well to some medications, but at the end of the day, like, I wish there was just a magic pill that I could take and, oh, your depression's cured, your panic disorder's cured, your all this is gone, and you are a quote-unquote normal human being. But the more you talk to people and the more you realize a staggering amount of people deal with mental illness, there is no normal. It, it, everybody is just who they are. There's no one way to be. Well, Stephen, you come off as a very charming likable dude and i hope so (laughs) and the fact that you started a podcast where you bring these things to light i'm glad that i've got to to meet you even if it's virtually (laughs) (laughs) virtually counts but if if anything just know if you don't hear this from anyone else i appreciate you and i am happy as hell that i was able to meet you and that you you didn't go through with it you know yeah i appreciate that man i am happy to have met you too i'm happy to be standing here sitting here i guess at my desk but yeah i'm happy to still be here and uh still fighting that's what it's about it's tough talk sometimes but you know it's uh it's about the fight and it's about dude i'm such a hippy dippy like it's all love like everybody take care of each other like like, I'm such a little hippy-dippy. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. You, if you're a hippy-dippy, then you're a, you're a peaceful warrior. Then, you know. Well, there you go. <laughs> Since I spoke to Stephen on this episode, we've communicated a few times online, through social media, and he's just a wonderful person. I got a little choked up at the end of the episode because, like all my guests, I I get to know you and I get to see you and see your pain. And it hurt me so much to hear his story. I guess that answers the question. I'm human too, and I do have feelings. And sometimes I can only hear so much before it really gets to me also. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.